Ludmilla, why would you cause this scandal with science professors about something as meaningless as spelling words? You must be more cordial, more flexible with these people. Because they are wrong, Vladimir. I'm an educated woman, and we are their superiors. This is my expertise. That's true. I am their superior. I have a very prominent and profitable new job for you. It's in that building right over there. You should go see your new offices. For me? Thank you, Vlad. This is wonderful. This office right here? Yes, that's the one. Go ahead, take a look inside. Keep walking. Right over there. Hi, Sandra. Hi, Neil, and hello and welcome. Thank you guys for being here with us today. This is so exciting. No doom, no gloom, and no tears this time. Although the details of this one are a bit on the sad side, I think, from Putin's ex-wife's perspective. We're talking about Putin's personal life, his now ex-wife, his daughters, what kind of husband he was, and of course his new much younger than him girlfriend. Yes, or as we have been referring to her in our phone conversations in preparation for this episode, the gymnast. We discussed the controversy surrounding his birthplace, so now we're going to look at what happened next in his personal life. We got a bit closer to the ideas behind that persona in the last episode. We talked about his childhood fascination with the film about the KGB saving the motherland from the Nazis and all that stuff. I think his persona is intended to be more chivalric than modern tough guy the more that I look at it. And it seems anything or anyone can be sacrificed for the good of Putin's noble medieval knight. Exactly. In 2008, Putin wanted a photo op with an endangered Siberian tiger who was scheduled to be transported to a sanctuary. But Putin was late, so the poor tiger had to be tranquilized twice so that he won't wake up and attack Putin. And when Putin finally arrived, he injected the tiger with tranquilizer for a third time for the cameras. And then he kissed and petted the tiger as reporters were taking photos. Obviously, the tiger died later that day from too much anesthetic, ketamine or whatever was in that syringe. So that is Putin in a nutshell. I think that is him in his personal life too, not only with the wife, but with his inner circle of acquaintances. I don't think he has any real friends. They're all afraid they're going to kiss them and then kill them. There is one friend of his. We briefly mentioned him in our premium episode about his time in the Stasi. And he figures prominently in Putin's personal life, too, to the point that he's the only one trusted with Putin's daughters when he feels that they could be in danger. His name is Matthias Warnig. I think... Warnig was his mentor in East Germany, and if there's a man that Putin absolutely trusts, it's him. In any case, he surely did not trust his wife, uh, Ludmilla, no longer Putina since she is remarried. All of that has become apparent, despite the fact that she completely trusted him. Yes, and we can't use the name Putina in the episode notes, as Apple thinks it's a swear word. Ugh. <laughs> it's... it's <laughs> I, it's crazy. Yes. As, uh, as soon as we posted our last episode about the possibility that Putin's mother may be a woman from Georgia who abandoned him as a child, so he's not even from Russia, possibly, mm -hmm. we noticed that Apple censored the word Putina in our episode title. So 
why they think the feminine pronunciation of Putin is an obscene word, I don't know. But in any case, algorithms are stupid and you should all go get philosophy and literature educations and then you can be broke, <laughs> uh, neurotic podcasters just like us. So they'll probably censor this one too, but we're going to harass them on Twitter about it and see how that goes, I suppose. <laughs> Probably, yeah. So Putin's first wife, Ludmilla, was born in Kaliningrad, the daughter of Alexander and Yekaterina Tikhonova. Her father was a mechanical plant uh, worker, and her mother was a housewife. So she came from a pretty poor upbringing, as Putin did. But she was the first to be educated in her family. She studied foreign languages and became a professor later in life in uh, 1986. She graduated from the branch of Spanish language and philology, not philosophy, philology. That would be the language-specific department. They know, Neil. They know what that is, no? <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to explain to them. <laughs> of the Leningrad State University. I got to look out for my humanities people. They are, uh, they are a, a sensitive lot. Yes, yes. And let me just say that back then in Eastern Europe and the USSR satellite countries, it was almost a tradition that girls would study literature and or foreign languages, arts, stuff like that. And boys would study engineering, medicine, statistics, more science-based subjects. Yes. And more often than not, especially the ladies, would get jobs that have nothing to do with their formal education. It was the same way in the West, to be honest. Oh. This is all over English literature criticism from the early 20th century. Despite having an advanced degree, Lyudmila became a flight attendant for the Kaliningrad branch of Aeroflot. And this cultural fascination with being an airline employee is also similar to the West. It's all pretty consistent with the Stalin vision of the Soviet empire that we're going to compete with the West and be a technocracy like the U.S. was becoming in the 50s and 60s. And airline jobs were considered very desirable here in the U.S. too. Yeah, those were very sought after jobs, so much so that from what I remember as a very, very young child, I think the assumption was that if you are a flight attendant, you are definitely 100% very well connected. Either that or you have a family member who is somehow in a good position in the party, the Communist Party, that is. That was the case with all decent jobs in the Soviet Union and satellite countries especially jobs that would allow one to travel, even if only on domestic flights at first. It was a launching pad. Traveling to the West was very tricky, so only a few select people were allowed out. So becoming a flight attendant was probably very attractive to Lyudmila at that point in time. But little did Lyudmila know that she was jumping into her own cage <laughs> when she met Putin on a theater devil date in Leningrad in 1979. She was 25 at the time, and Putin was 31. Yes, and at that point, he was already working as a KGB officer, and the story is that they dated for almost four years, but Putin wanted to be sure of her loyalty. So he asked a friend of his to test her. Ugh. So he sent this guy to ask her out, and she told him she's in love with Putin, which obviously satisfied Putin, and then he proposed to Ludmila. This testing thing shows just how insecure he is, and also... A control freak, I think. Ugh, I don't like it. I don't like it at all. It gives me bad vibes. 
Yes, it's terrible. This is very much what a teenage boy envisions to be in his chivalric romance. He seems to imagine himself as the pure, noble guardian of the state. And just like the title of his favorite boyhood movie that we talked about in the last episode. And he's got to have his maiden in distress perform some token of her purity before he will accept her. It's very, uh, it's very medieval romance. <laughs> right, right, it is. And these purity tests uh, did not come across the way he imagined them. They never do, let's be honest. <laughs> So apparently she thought that he was dumping her when he started this sort of bizarre proposal ritual. According to First Person, a biography from the 2000s with some interviews uh, from people who knew the Putins at the time, he told her after they'd been dating for four years, quote, you know what kind of person I am by now. In general, I'm not easygoing. In three and a half years, you have probably made up your mind. Those are very understated words, shall we say. <laughs> you have no idea what you're getting into. Exactly. And her response to his very awkward proposal was, it sounded like we were breaking up. And she told him <laughs> that she had made up her mind. And his response was a very meek and uh, like high school boy, yes. <laughs> I think he was so insecure in his personal life at the time, hence the testing thing and the surprise that she even said yes. And this links to the fear of rejection due to abandonment trauma as a child, all the stuff we discussed in the episode about his very early years. And anyway, Vladimir and Lyudmila got married on July 28th, 1983, and we're gonna post photos on our social media. We're at dubious spot everywhere, guys. Twitter, Insta, Facebook, even TikTok. Even in their younger pictures, he looks a bit meek and defeated. And it goes without saying that their honeymoon was in Ukraine because, of course, it was... <laughs> The country with the idyllic and strategically important peninsula that the motherland had conquered for the glory of Russia. This guy was fully bought in. He is a company man to his core. I'm telling you, Putin's obsession with Ukraine is more than geopolitical. This guy has unresolved feelings and issues and grudges. Yeah, and it's part of his persona, too. He's got to consider his legacy. And the Soviet party losing Ukraine forever after he imagined it as the perfect place for his noble and chivalric first marriage celebration probably feels like a personal failure as well as a geopolitical failure to him. I agree. I think his obsession with Ukraine over the years has some personal elements to it, for sure. So they spent their honeymoon in Crimea, Lviv, and Kiev, and this is insane, and I honestly thought twice before saying this, but look, their divorce goes through in 2013, and in February-March 2014, he annexes Crimea. Now, obviously, we're not saying that he invaded Crimea because he divorced his wife. There are a myriad of political and military reasons why he did that, but this is an interesting detail, and subconsciously, there might be some connection there, especially looking at the timeline. So they get married, they go on the honeymoon, come back, and from 1990 to 1994, Ludmilla taught German at the Department of Philology of Leningrad State University. So she returned to her area of expertise from her education. So her status has increased from her marriage, in other words. She doesn't have to take a quote-unquote women's job anymore, like being a flight attendant. 
Yes, and then their first daughter, Maria, is born on April 28, 1985 in Leningrad, Soviet Union at the time. And then Putin, as a young KGB officer, is posted in East Germany. So the family moves there and we discussed his time in Dresden and his work with the Stasi and Carlos the Jackal in Putin's Rise to Power Part 1, one of our premium episode guys that you probably heard. And in Dresden, that's where their second daughter, Yekaterina, Katya, is born in August 1986. And it seems as if they had a happy life in Germany until the fall of the wall. But when the party collapsed, they had to move back to Russia. And at that point, their paths began to diverge. Yes. And as first lady, Lyudmila was involved in a spelling controversy. So in her role, she was a curator of a fund that aimed to improve or, you know, develop the Russian language. And sometimes produced reports about Russian language and education. So her preference was for, and I quote, maintaining and preserving the Russian language. And that led her to make public statements against this orthographic reform. And the Russian Academy of Science sponsored a commission to study the orthography of the Russian language and propose changes. And their recommendations were made public in 2002. So after eight years of work, right? But Lyudmila Putina rejected them. One newspaper in Moscow alleged that Lyudmila Putina de facto cancelled any attempts to reform spelling. So the idea is that public and academic reaction to the reform was sufficiently negative to have that particular reform attempt abandoned, which I think has something to do with the fact that the teaching part of her life ended at that point. So I will qualify to be clear. I don't know anything about the Russian language or its etymologies. I am going to assume, however, that she was probably right. All such attempts, in my opinion, to reform language from scientific academics are usually wrong because you are trying to erase cultural history to some extent. And... You're implying that all of the things that came before you as the advocate of modernization are somehow wrong. So do these guys from the Science Academy know better than Tolstoy? And do they know better than Dostoevsky? No, they do not. They need to go back to uh, emailing Chomsky every day and leave us alone. Thank you. But in any case, Putin punished his wife for getting involved in this minor public controversy by relegating her to an office by herself, literally. She was thereafter the only employee of a company called Telecom Invest and went to the office every day to answer the phone and arrange meetings completely alone, the only person in the building. So the first perceived mistake in Putin's eyes put her right back into one of those quote-unquote women's jobs, answering the phone, to keep her quiet. And just in case that didn't work, he put her in a symbolic cage of sorts in a building by herself. I mean, can you imagine somebody doing that to the mother of his children? That's kind of insane. And look, as much as I love Crime and Punishment and Romeo and Juliet, we can't talk in Shakespeare, English, and Russians can't speak in Dostoevsky and Tolstoy Russian either in 2022. So... I kind of disagree on the orthographic reform thing. Languages evolve and they change and that is good. But anyway, about their marriage, over the years, their relationship seemed to be more of an arrangement than an actual relationship between two people who love each other, despite the fact that they went on vacations together, you know, the south of France, Davos and so on. 
And during and after Vladimir's rise to political power, Lyudmila maintained a very low profile, for the most part, on the Russian political stage, and she avoided the limelight except in situations required by protocol, and her public role was mostly restricted to supportive statements about her husband. That's it. I think restricted is the right word. You can see looking back at the events that his chosen path up the ladder, so to speak, was for him only. And when she tried to even assume some lesser role of even a little bit of prominence, he punished her for it. And at some point, of course, there's the gymnast. So on June 6th of 2013, they publicly announced their divorce during a ballet intermission. And in 2014, the divorce was final. Well, at least they went full circle in the sense that they met at a theater play and divorced during a ballet performance. So very artistic situation all around. And look, Lyudmila, three years later, in January 2016, married Artur Ocharetny. And good for her, this guy is hotter than Putin and he's 21 years younger than Lyudmila. <laughs> so, I mean, he's 21 years younger than her. So, you know, he used to work for Putin's party when he ran for president. So he's an entrepreneur, which I think is code surely for all kinds of maybe shady stuff. But either way, he's loaded. So go Lyudmila. Yeah, I'm happy for her. She should get to have her fun too, if he's going to trade her in for a 21-year-old gymnast. Mm -hmm. And yes, anyone who calls themselves entrepreneur in a former socialist country that is very mineral rich is speaking in all sorts of code words, I'm sure. But she surely hasn't escaped the symbolic cage entirely because to be her wealthy new younger husband, uh, he also has to have Putin's favor, right? Yes, and no doubt about that. Absolutely. Regarding Lyudmila, though, there are reports that Putin, when he started this invasion of Ukraine in 22, so not the Crimea invasion, he moved Lyudmila to a secret bunker in Siberia. I think it makes sense because she is, after all, Russia's former first lady, and this is a security concern. I think he didn't do that for the rest of the family or not for all of them, as they aren't like officially connected to the Kremlin, like Lyudmila is. His daughters, I think, are continuing their lavish lives as, as if nothing happens. Speaking of, guess who guarded Putin's daughters from his first marriage when he felt that they could be in danger because of some issues with Russian mafia figures in the 1990s? I have no idea. Who? Our old friend Matthias Varnig. Hmm. In the German pronunciation. See, my German is getting better. <laughs> well, I mean, that's your opinion. Well, it is. It is. Okay. Guys, he's making a reference to the intro for the Marilyn Monroe episode where we really laughed about it because we don't do accents. We don't do them well. We're not good no, at that. No. Particularly German. And to be fair, better than zero is better <laughs> in terms of my German. So I, it was not a large step to get better. No, but you did good on the Varnig guy now. And Thank you. Yes, you really did good. By the way, just a small uh, digression here. While he was in Germany, Putin was actually signing his name Vladimir with W in the German spelling. I found that very interesting. Probably he really loved the Stasi so much in his life there that he actually signed himself as if he was German. That is a nice touch from his philology-educated wife, I guarantee you. <laughs> <laughs> so anyways, our boy from the Stasi, Matthias Varnig. I think if Putin has a mentor, this guy is the mentor. 
We will have plenty to say about him in our next episode about Putin's personal wealth. But for now, consider the fact that he is the CEO of the company that manages the oil and gas pipeline between Russia and Germany. There is one thing keeping Western Europe from helping Ukraine, and that is gas. And Matthias Varnig, former major in the Stasi, not any Russian oligarch, is in charge of the delivery of that gasoline. So Putin trusts not only his daughters, but his livelihood, the one thing that keeps everybody out of his invasion of the Ukraine with Matthias Varnik. And in any case, Putin's daughters from his first marriage are educated, in fairness. One is a medical doctor of pediatric endocrinology, and the other has a master's degree in math and physics. And the doctor, Maria, is married to a Dutch businessman named Joris Fossen, and she has a government position in genetic research completely outside of her field of expertise, of course. And the U.S. Treasury Department states, quote, Vorontsova leads state-funded programs that have received billions of dollars from the Kremlin towards genetic research and are personally overseen by Putin, all of which says basically, you know, family business money laundering to me. Mm-hmm. And of course, his daughters are highly educated and, you know, they have these great positions and they're involved in business and technology and all this stuff. But about Varnik being his mentor, I don't know. We saw what happens to his mentors. I don't think anybody should want or aim to be Putin's mentor. I don't know if it's his mentor or if he's just a very good, trusted friend. Either way, I think sooner or later, Putin will probably turn on him. He proved that he can do that. And about his girls, yes, of course, they're well-educated. They have all these amazing positions. And I mean, his second official daughter because he allegedly has a bunch of other kids that are not officially part of the Putin family. So his second daughter, Ekaterina, is a scientist and former acrobatic dancer. And she was married and then got divorced in 2018. And there are several videos of her energetic performances with her partner, Ivan Klimov, online. And there's an NPR article linking a video of one of these performances. And we're going to put that link in the episode notes. So Putin never spoke about his daughters prior to 2010 or so. At some point, people were actually wondering if he had any. Even his official daughters were a secret for many years. But anyway, Katerina, his youngest daughter, appears to be building a public profile now and was last seen speaking at the St. Petersburg International Economic Forum in Russia, the country's sort of equivalent to Davos. But as with her earlier media appearances, nobody explicitly linked her with Putin. Uh, according to the U.S. Treasury statement about her, she is a tech executive whose work supports the government of Russia and its defense industry. So basically, both of his daughters are very well off financially and have influential positions, not just prominent positions. Yes, and in a press conference in 2015... This is what Putin said about his two daughters. I quote, 
They are taking the first steps in their careers, but they are making good progress. They are not involved in business or politics. They have never been star children. They have never got pleasure from the spotlight being directed on them. They just live their own lives. They live in Russia. I am proud of them. They continue to study and they are working. My daughters speak three European languages fluently. But of course, none of that's true. They are close to his personal money and the state's money. They have these prominent roles within state agencies and state organizations that handle billions of dollars, and I'm sure they are there to keep an eye out. Exactly. And look, I'm not minimizing their accomplishments, and I'm sure they're very smart, well-educated women, but let's be honest, they wouldn't be where they are if their dad wasn't the Tsar. I don't yeah, exactly. think. Yeah. And, you know, even now, as adults, when they are invited on TV shows, rarely, you know, or when they have any kind of media appearance or appearance at all, nobody introduces them as Putin's daughters or even refers to that fact. So they've been kept shielded and kind of out of the spotlight for a very long time. And, you know, when the family moved to Moscow in 1996, Masha and Katya attended the German language school. And then they were removed from school when Putin became acting president and they had teachers educating them at home. So they also went to university, of course, but they attended university under false identities. He also said that he didn't want to share further details about his daughters due to security concerns. But, you know, all world leaders have kids and they're not so guarded as he is when it comes to family life. In fact, on the contrary, let's be honest, they flaunt their families on TV day and night when running for office and while in office. In Putin's case, it's probably his KGB brain. He sees them as weaknesses enemies might use against him because he really didn't say a lot in that interview or in any interview, to be honest, generally. Yeah. And look, I think he clearly loves his daughters and he probably loves all of his children. I think he thinks that that can be perceived as weakness. And our boy Putin can be anything but weak. His ex-wife, Lyudmila, said not all fathers are as loving with their children as he is, and he has always spoiled them while I was the one who had to discipline them. I think she was probably being accurate. His tough guy persona is uh, taking over there, and he probably was the one to spoil the daughters. It usually is the mm -hmm, father that spoils mm -hmm. the daughters. I agree. I agree. Definitely that's an act. You know, all fathers love their daughters. That's like, it's just a given. And you know what? He's definitely proud of them. He actually said so in 2017. He said that in an interview. And in the same interview, he also confirmed that he's a grandfather, but he said that he plays with his grandchildren, I quote, very seldom, unfortunately. So yes, he has at least two grandchildren from Katerina and Maria. But other than that, there's not much information about them uh, in public. We know that, according to Putin himself, one of the grandkids was in preschool in 2017. The other one had just been born. And he said, the thing is, I don't want them to grow up like hereditary princes. I want them to grow up to be normal people. So I can deduce from that that they are probably boys. Yeah. And he says... If I mention ages and names, they would be identified and never left alone. Yes, and I mean, I get it. Look, I get it. But still, come on, all presidents have kids and grandkids. And this secrecy surrounding Putin's grandkids is just a bit too much. I mean, not even acknowledging his two daughters with his first wife for a long time, like publicly, there was no talk about that. That's extreme, even for a KGB guy. Maybe it's a bit of personal 
well-being on his part, too, looking out for number one, because we sanctioned his daughters, the official ones. The U.S. Treasury placed sanctions on their foreign accounts and assets after the Bucha and Borodjanka massacres. If nobody knows who they are, then there are no sanctions. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Although I do think, you know, our intelligence agencies do probably know who all his children are. But technically, yeah, I can see the reasoning behind keeping all his family members hidden and not in the public eye. And you know who we didn't sanction, though? Not yet, at least. His current girlfriend and potentially secret wife, as some press is suggesting, the gymnast. Do you want to tell the people about her? I know you like her a lot. And she's gorgeous, I have to admit. <laughs> <laughs> well, her name is Alina Maritovna Kabaeva. And I mean, what's not to like? <laughs> Every Google image result for this woman is a gymnastics routine. And she is very, uh, shall we say, flexible. Yes, that's the thing. Normally, Alina Kabaeva would be someone... I'd admire as far as her gymnastics career goes. You know, she was born in 1983 in Uzbekistan and she started gymnastics as a very young child. She worked really hard for her medals. By the way, her name is also spelled Kabaeva with a Y, so I found it spelled differently in different places. But look, she's one of the most decorated gymnasts in rhythmic gymnastic history, with two Olympic medals, 14 World Championship medals, and 21 European Championship medals. That's a lot of medals and a lot of work that went into each and every one of them. Yes, absolutely. And this is something that, I know, it's not as big a deal in the West, and we don't appreciate this as much. But... On the topic of her Olympic achievements, why, 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 why is doping a thing in gymnastics? Really? I mean, I get with these endurance events in the Olympics, but apparently there is doping in gymnastics too. Yes, yes. And I'll explain in a second why, but also you made a really good point. In the US, it seems there's not a lot of fascination with gymnastics, especially, but let me tell you, in Europe, and especially Eastern Europe and my country, like in Romania, oh my God, like gymnastics is a big thing. Like we watch this religiously, like when the Olympics are on, like if we can't be home, we record like the gymnastics. We never miss any of the gymnastics, men's and women's. I could give you guys a little bit of advice. If you have your gymnasts fight with each other on Twitter, like NBA players do, they're going to be rock stars. <laughs> Unfortunately, or fortunately, the gymnasts in general have put a very united front together when issues arise. We had the discussion with um, sexual abuse in the gymnastic world and like all kinds of abuse and bullying by the coaches and stuff like that. And trust me, regardless of what countries they're from, generally, they're very united. And that's a good thing. Now, look, about the doping, gymnastics seems... I guess, easier or whatever, because the gymnasts are doing it with music and choreography, but it is endurance too. I mean, it's extremely hard to do what they do. And if there's a chemical that helps, the Russians will use it to get medals. Yes. And steroids are used in all sports, not only endurance sports. So yeah, there was a doping scandal involving her. In 2001, Alina Kabaeva and Irina Chashchina were convicted of using furosemide and they were both disqualified for two years. And they were stripped of all the awards of the 2001 Goodwill Games and World Cup. And from August 2001 to August 2002, they were not allowed to take part in any competition. And the second year of disqualification was given conditionally, though. That is, they were allowed to compete in official tournaments, but under the strictest control. So afterwards, 
at the first international competition after the ban, the 2002 European Rhythmic Gymnastics Championship, Alina Kabaeva took first place in the individual all-around. The individual all-around means she was the best at everything, each discipline she took the gold. So she proved she's a force to be reckoned with in gymnastics. And also, let's be honest, in Russia, gymnasts have no say in what the coaches and the trainers decide to do. If the coach asks you to take furosemite, you're going to take it or you're out of the team after you worked your entire life to go to the Olympics. So it is what it is. And of course... Now she has a laundry list of ridiculous state commendations and medals, like those British uh, nuts princes. We got to get our terminology right for the uh, philology professors out there. Yes, and this is the list of honors that, you know, she received as kind of soon as she started dating Putin, I would say. She got the Honored Master of Sports of the Russian Federation in 1999, the Order of Friendship 2001, Order for Merit to the Fatherland in 2005, and Russian Federation Presidential Certificate of Honor 2013, and even got an Order of Honor from South Ossetia in 2015. And from what I could put together from my research, they did indeed meet for the first time in 1999, 2000-ish, and some reports say 2001, but for sure, the first photos of them online are dated 2001 and were taken in a context of what seemed to be him giving her one of those honor medals, and in one photo he is giving her a bouquet of flowers, but it's in an official setting. And the thing that struck me is the look on Putin's face. I have never seen this man smile with his face as well as with his eyes at the same time until seeing these photos of him and Kabayeva. These are literally the only photos of him where he seems very human, in love, his eyes are smiling, he doesn't have that stone-cold stare he usually has. I was shocked. He looked like a puppy. Imagine that. Putin looking actually cute and warm and like a regular person. We'll definitely post some of these photos on our social media. You guys will see what I'm talking about. It's insane. I really think he was and still is massively in love with her. I'm guessing that his wife for the next 13 years after that time also noticed how happy he was to be around the gymnast. And <laughs> I mean, when you have relegated your equal in terms of education and aptitude, in your current wife, to sitting by herself in a building all day, answering a phone. I think he had resigned himself to not having an accomplished and educated partner and a wife anymore. And perhaps this is another one of his projects. He took a 21-year-old gymnast, as you said, who is in no position to refuse him, and molded her into the wife that uh, he thought he wanted. I'm also thinking, though, let's not forget that actually, you know, Kabaeva does have a lot of accomplishments and it's not a competition. But if one were to analyze, you know, besides the fact that she won Olympic gold and many other medals and she won those on merit, not because of Putin, let's clarify that, you know, then she went to college she earned a master's degree and she has a PhD as well. And she also had a political career, which I do think, you know, is connecting to Putin's influence. But, you know, she was a PM in the Duma, the Russian parliament, for many years. And now she's running a media empire, albeit one that helps keep Russian people prisoners as far as information goes, right? Like she's helping yeah. him keep them in the darkness. Let's put it that way. Yeah. And about information. 
In 2008, when the news broke that Putin was dating a woman half his age and is planning to leave his wife of 30 years to be with this new woman, the Russian paper that broke the news, uh, Moskovsky Correspondent, was forced to... You are to... doing great on the Russian words, Neil. I'm so proud of you. Well... Like, you've been doing amazing. I think Russian is your thing, not German, really. I'm going to be a suicidal uh, Russian novelist any day now, I'm sure. And, Please uh, don't, because we got to do the <laughs> podcast. Like, <laughs> let's not, yeah, let's not go there. No, no, no. No Dostoevsky's and no, no. Which one was the one? Suicide? <laughs> Tolstoy's too. Don't Tolstoy, forget. yeah. So. Yeah. So let's not, yeah, we need to make a podcast. I can't do it without you, so. Anyway, uh, the paper was forced to close immediately after they revealed this rumor. And the billionaire oligarch owner cited financial difficulties. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Why am I not surprised? That's exactly what Putin would do. Close the newspaper. By the way, I did some math really fast here. And Kabayeva is 38 now, 39. And Putin is almost 70. So when they met in 1999-ish, she was 21 and he was 51. And the president of the largest piece of land between the same borders on this planet. So, of course, the rumors started flowing like the Nile. And after this, the Russian press were afraid to even ask anything about her. Uh, she became a taboo subject, of course. The Sunday Times reported that Putin once got a bit angry and said, <laughs> I've always had a negative feeling about people poking their snotty noses in erotic fantasies into other people's lives. He's very much tipping his <laughs> hand there. This is exactly what I was going to say. <laughs> people accuse what they are guilty of. It is a cardinal rule. You can take it to the bank. Exactly. And he does so we have... know not only about his erotic fantasies, but that he has a snotty nose. <laughs> <laughs> That's so good. I love that. Yes. And we know he has a history of doing exactly that, accusing others of what he's doing or planning to do. And look, Kabayeva was cryptic too. She only confirmed that the time that she was with someone, quote, whom I love very much. And she also said, quote, sometimes you feel so happy that you even feel scared. Mm. <laughs> I mean, I would be scared too if be I right think to I... be scared. <laughs> yes, exactly. And in 2017, she was already wearing a wedding ring after wearing a very loose red dress that clearly covered a baby bump. That's what I can tell from the pictures. I mean, she looked entirely different in just a matter of like a few years from the photos of her we've seen before. And we're going to drop the link in the notes for you guys. Judge for yourselves. There's not a lot of information uh, out there about their children, but it seems that they have four. They have a seven-year-old twin daughters who were born near Lugano, Switzerland in February of 2015. And most people believe that they also have two sons, and the sons were born in Moscow. So it seems that there are four little Putins running around <laughs> Switzerland at this very moment with Alina. And the kids all have Swiss passports, of course, and I would suppose that she does as well. And all of this is relevant. Um, his grandchildren are sent to spend time, at least, uh, or spend their entire childhood in Switzerland and Germany. 
And we talked about this in our episode about the Stasi a bit uh, that we're going to dig more into for the next episode about his personal wealth. Yes, and about where and how the children were born, you know, it's very unclear. So I tried digging and digging and I found so many different variations, but an exiled investigative journalist with sources in Russian intelligence told the Sunday Times that the twins were delivered via C-section on a VIP floor that had been cleared out of all other patients in a Moscow hospital. Now, the good news of Kabaeva's new babies is said to have briefly appeared on the website of a well-reputed Russian newspaper, and apparently, I quote, vanished soon afterwards without trace, prompting speculation that the Kremlin had stepped in to protect Putin's privacy. That's what the Sunday Times also said. But yes, one detail has always remained the same for children. It's not even that important where they were born. And after stepping down as a member of parliament in 2013, Alina became the chairwoman of the National Media Group, a pro-Kremlin empire of TV and radio and print journalism. And the media group is controlled by Yuri Kovalchuk, a finance and media guy added to the U.S. and EU sanction list over Ukraine during the annexation of Crimea. Yes, uh, Kovalchuk and Putin know each other from when they were shareholders in the Ozero Dacha Collective near St. Petersburg in the 1990s. Ozero was basically this gated community, and anyone living there later entered Putin's inner circle. Like, basically his oligarch slash mobster buddies, those were the people from Ozero. And about Kabaeva now being in Switzerland, the reports say that she has this fleet of luxury cars at her disposal, security teams, and I guess, you know, that's implied. I'm pretty sure Putin keeps her and the kids safe at all times, so safe that nobody has seen them in more than three years. Kabaeva was last seen in public in October 2018, when she defended her PhD thesis on training preschool children in rhythmic gymnastics. Nothing since. No public appearances. Absolutely nothing. She and the children have probably been in Switzerland the whole time. I think it would be more interesting to know what she does in Switzerland all day. Considering he was being brought to Davos much earlier in his life and used that opportunity to make Western corporate friends, if she's doing the same thing, then she really is multi-talented. <laughs> but if she is not, then, well, she's not. And in that case, I would probably leave her alone if I were a Western country. I mean, a 21-year-old kid does not have much choice when you were born into a dictatorship and, you know, the dictator's hungry eye turns to you. Yes, and look, I agree to that to an extent, except that now she's almost 40, not 21, and she has kids of her own, and she lives in plush and opulence with her healthy, happy kids while their dad is bombing maternities and children's hospitals in Ukraine. So let's not paint her as this fragile young damsel in distress, you know, the deer in the spotlight. I mean, if that was the case 20 years ago, and I, I, I agree it was, right? Like the balance of power there when they met was really off, right? I don't think she really had a choice in saying no, you know, but that was 20 years ago. Things changed. So I do believe she should be sanctioned. It's not like the sanctions are going to put Kabaeva and the kids in poverty living under a bridge. It's a signal to Putin that the West will not be deterred and that 
as he goes after activists and dissidents and other people's wives and kids, well, we can too, not by murdering them as he does, but by sanctioning them. End of story. And, you know, now let's talk really fast about Luisa Rozova, also known as Elisaveta Krivonich, also another love child of Putin, allegedly, with yet another woman from his past. So the investigative media outlet, you're going to get over your praise of my Russian pronunciation on this one. It's easy. It, it's easy. It, this is, is too it, easy. Is it Proct? No, Neil, it's Proect. Is, like Project, oh. Proect. Okay. It's like okay. Project, but yeah, yeah, yeah. It's easy. You you got the complicated ones, like the really long words, and didn't get this one. I like things the hard way. <laughs> <laughs> Proect broke the story and reported that Elisaveta is the daughter of Putin and 45-year-old Svetlana Krivon Ogich. <laughs> Krivon Ogich, <laughs> A shareholder in a major Russian bank who also owns a St. Petersburg erotic night spot. Isn't that convenient? <laughs> I knew you were going to say something for sure about the night spot. <laughs> I don't care about names, and I'm guessing that neither do any of the people that go to her nightclubs. They don't need names. Svetlana allegedly had an affair with Putin when he was the head of the FSB counterintelligence service, prime minister, and during his first term as the Russian president as well. As their relationship was coming to an end, she got pregnant, and then in 2003, Elizaveta was born. So, Rozova is just 18 years old. She's a student in St. Petersburg, and she was quite the Instagram influencer with 84,000 followers until recently, but five months ago, as they were preparing their invasion of Ukraine, she was apparently told to stop posting, and she's disappeared from there since. Um, presumably, he wanted to keep her safe from prying eyes on social media, and I'm sure she is somewhere that nobody will ever find, unlike the unfortunate people in Ukraine who get found by Russian rockets like children and pregnant women. Oh, yes, yes. And look, since we are nearing the end of the episode, but we're not quite there yet, I do have a surprise for you. I did a side goog while you were talking earlier, and I'm going to read you something I found online. Listen, you'll love this. Are you ready? Okay. But are you ready, ready? Okay, tell me. Okay, here we go. Alina Kabaeva was dubbed Russia's most flexible woman and once posed semi-nude while wrapped in animal fur for a men's magazine. (laughs) (laughs) I mean this with the utmost sincerity. Send me the link. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let me tell you, it's a very tasteful set of photos, so... Yes, I'll send you the link. And I don't know, with a body like hers, why wouldn't she pose for magazines? Good for her. Obviously, this was way back when, before Putin. And by the way, did you see her perform at the Olympics in Athens? No. Americans don't watch the Olympics. Sorry. Uh, it's you know. Gorgeous routine. You guys just watch some of her videos online competing. She's really talented, no doubt. And I just wish she'd tell him to stop the madness. Do you think he'd listen to her? Do you think she might have already told him to end this insane war? Or is she just as evil as him? I don't know what she really thinks. Uh, I don't think anybody else knows because she's not very accessible. My first instinct is to not care about her as much as his first wife. I think her story is more interesting. 
because she's the tragic figure here. She didn't really do anything wrong. It wasn't her fault that the party collapsed and they had to bail out of Dresden. And it wasn't her fault that her husband turned out to be a sociopath either. Yes, I kind of agree. Lyudmila really, I think, if there is any victim here... Lyudmila is the one that suffered the most, but, you know, now she's very happy and she's living this lavish life with a guy who's 21 years younger than her. But yes, Putin was very unfair and cruel towards Lyudmila. Can you imagine? You get married, you spend years with your husband, you bear his children, you get a prominent job within your field of expertise after being a professor that, you know, in the field that you've been educated in. And when you make the slightest of news headlines that may, however slightly, threaten his political career, you are immediately stuck in a building by yourself in front of a phone that never rings. No, I agree. That's that's completely insane. But there is an explanation for that. At the time, Putin was trying to become president, so he was prime minister. The timing was key. And... In this case, the timing was wrong because if Lyudmila would have caused the reform scandal after he became president, there wouldn't have been any issues. He wouldn't have stuck her in that building, but he preferred to punish and humiliate his wife and keep her away from public eye as much as possible from that moment on, yes. So what do you think about uh, the gymnast, Alina? Do you think she's more important? My initial thought is no, but... The more I think about it, Putin has made a whole life for himself out of being underestimated. So that may be wrong. Yes, I kind of have mixed feelings, but I do tend to think that she's in on it all. Because look, throughout all these years since they met, Alina's wealth grew exponentially. She has been a member of parliament. She is leading one of the top media conglomerates, and that is key to his public image and propaganda machine. I don't think she does nothing in Switzerland. I think she makes friends with bankers and billionaires from the West to ensnare them into Putin's family plans, just like Putin's German friends from his Stasi days did before he even met her. If that's true, he has played his hand against his enemies masterfully, to be honest. We talked a bit about this in our episode about the Stasi and Putin's time there. And the thing that he learned, which separated him from his peers, that none of the Soviet premiers managed to accomplish before him, was not how to compete with the Western countries and corporations. They were wrong. No, competing was wrong. Putin knows how to befriend them, befriending them with money, befriending them with Russia's natural resources, befriending them with powerful positions and corporations if they're willing to help him. But at the end of that gold-threaded rope, what he offers them is the KGB. It's always the KGB. It has always been the KGB. And the KGB takes what it wants, tells what lies it needs to tell, and kills anyone who steps out of line and departs from the plan. And as you mentioned earlier, since he is now secretive about how many children he has and where they are and what they do, think about it. In the future, there could be little Putins running around corporate offices and diplomatic agencies in every single wealthy Western country. <gasps> I, I don't want to think about that. The thought of many, many Putins, little ones or big ones, is a very scary thought. It is, but 
it's the thing that makes the most sense, isn't it? When you think about it, what what does all of this lead to? What does what's the plan? Because there is a plan. There's always a plan. For sure, with Putin, there's always a plan, and he does play the long, long game. Yes, yes, it's a long term yes. plan. <laughs> and I think that's what he envisions. I think he envisions when he's dead that there will be little Putins running around in German banks and British banks, and. French corporate offices and American Wall Street firms, and there will be so many of them that nobody will be able to pinpoint them all. <laughs> yeah, I can, I can see that being his plan. Any books this episode? No books. Guys, I have no books to recommend this episode. I couldn't really find books about his private life. Not really. It's mostly articles. In fact, there's barely any info about it. What you heard in this episode is, I would dare say about almost everything that there is out there. You know, we had to dig around so much just to find all the info to create this episode. So no, no books this time. I will make a couple of movie recommendations. And our German audience, which has grown a little bit. Yes, hi people from Germany. And I will apologize for doing such a bad job at your language to our German friends that may <laughs> hear this. But anyway, there are a couple of German films that are relevant to what we're talking about. Number one, the Bader-Meinhof complex is about the Red Army faction, uh, who, as we know now, Putin was funding from the Stasi offices in East Germany. There's also a great movie about the Stasi. It's called The Lives of Others. The same actress that uh, starred in the Bader-Meinhof complex is actually the lead actress in that movie as well. It's about a theater family, uh, a husband and wife that are actress and playwright that are being spied on by the Stasi toward the end of the uh, Soviet Party's collapse. And don't forget to recommend us to your friends, guys. We're still at the beginning and word of mouth matters a lot. And I was also going to say hi to uh, American people and British people and Australian people. And honestly, look, Finland, Estonia, Croatia, Romania, Ukraine. Yes, hello. I mean, we have so many people from everywhere. And I just want to say we love you all, guys. And we are very honored and happy that you are here with us. So thank you guys for listening to us. We'll see you next time.